We read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from the Epistle to the Romans, a portion of chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We'll read the first 26 verses. We read this passage in connection with the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4, where we seek to understand the righteousness of our God. We hear the word of God in Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ, for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, 
and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. As he saith also in Hosea, I will call them my people which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Thus far we read from God's infallibly inspired word. Call your attention especially to verse 14 in this passage. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. It's in this light that we consider the instruction of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. Lord's Day 4 found on page 4 in the back of our Psalter. Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all, for God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts." Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins, and will punish them in his just judgment, temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the truth of God's sovereignty, especially with regard to predestination, has been proclaimed, it has met fierce opposition. Romans chapter 9 shows that this was the case even in the days of the apostles. And the apostle Paul knows that the truth that God is sovereign will not be received by the sinful heart and mind of men. His teaching will be bitterly opposed. And some of the most weighty of these objections he considers in the passage we read in this ninth chapter of his letter to the Romans. Here he cuts off that objection that there is unrighteousness with God if he loves Jacob and hates Esau without regard to their works. 
What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. But what shall we, as God's people, say? We who, by grace, desire to bow before the teaching of Scripture. How do we meet such objections? Shall we attempt to justify God by calling him before the bar of human reason and our own logical arguments? Again, God forbid. For let us remember that God is always God. He is always the judge, never the defendant. We are always judged by him, but he cannot be judged by us. Neither do we justify him, but he always justifies himself. We can never say anything of ourselves about God, for we would surely be found liars. We can but turn to God's word. We can but search the scriptures. We must inquire as to what God says. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in Romans 9. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses. He goes right to the scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so too. As we consider Lord's Day 4, in response to the doctrine of total depravity, in response to the horrible picture of our sin and misery, as believers we attempt to understand the truth of God's righteousness. We reason not as does carnal fallen man, wicked men, dread the thought of punishment for sin. They would like to be able to sin with impunity. Wicked men attempt to persuade themselves that they can continue in sinful ways and yet escape punishment. Wicked men search for a possibility that will enable them to escape the dreadful results of sin the consequences, positively, we, in the consciousness of our sin and misery, desire to understand how God is righteous in all his dealings with the sinner. And we would desire to do so in the light of his word. We desire to understand how God is righteous in requiring from man in his law that which he cannot perform. We desire to understand how God is righteous in punishing the sinner. And we desire to understand how God is righteous in manifesting his mercy unto some. And seeking to answer these questions, 
We search the scriptures to see what God has revealed to us in his word. Again, carnal man would concoct his own God, which is but an idol, an image of the sovereign God. He would change the living God into an idol of his own imagination in order to attain a feeling of safety and security in his service of sin. Carnal man repudiates the perfect righteousness and justice of the living God. We confess God cannot be changed. He tells us himself in Malachi 3 verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We confess that in all his dealings with the sinner, God is perfectly righteous. And it's in this light that we consider this morning Lord's Day 4 under the theme, God's righteousness and the sinner. And we notice first of all that he is righteous in demanding obedience. Secondly, that he is righteous in punishing the sinner. And finally, that he's righteous in manifesting his mercy. The living God demands that we love him. That's the essence of his demand. He requires perfect obedience to his holy law. He demands, according to question and answer four, that we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That law of God must be in our hearts. We must delight in the law of God and meditate upon it day and night. But we are not capable of loving God. We are completely devoid of love as we are in ourselves. We are by nature incapable of performing the demand of the law. We are by nature enemies of God. We hate God and his holy law. So we have before us the question, doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? God requires of us what we can't perform. It's not just a matter of our will, but of our very nature. He demands the impossible. How can God possibly be righteous in demanding obedience? Scripture testifies that God is righteous and perfectly just. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, we read concerning God, He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. The main idea of this text is that of an unchangeable criterion. God is the rock. He is the only abiding, firm, unchangeable reality, the standard, the criterion of all things. Scripture speaks in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 12, verse 1, of the righteousness of God. 
We read, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Notice that the prophet here proceeds by testifying that God is righteous. He doesn't understand it perfectly, by no means. But he begins, God is righteous. God is righteous in the ultimate and absolute sense of the word. Finally, notice Psalm 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And the following verses explain these ways and works of Jehovah. He is nigh unto all that call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of them that fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. He preserves all that love him, but he will destroy all the wicked. That is the righteousness of Jehovah. In all his ways, he blesses them that fear him, and he destroys his enemies. And it's clear from these passages and all of Scripture that the very being of God is righteousness. This absolute righteousness of God is that virtue of God according to which all his willing and acting is in harmony with his holiness. It's the harmony of his will with his own nature as the ultimate standard of all that is right. God is straight and upright, always willing that which is in harmony with his conception of himself. But just suppose for a moment that we would have to answer that God is indeed unrighteous in requiring of us what we can never perform. That God simply isn't fair. Would that change the situation for us at all? Is it possible for us even then to escape the sovereign God of heaven and earth? Can we refuse to work, say, in God's world with God's power and means and tools and capital? Can we simply quit work and organize a, a strike against him? Are we in a position to leave God's factory, so to speak, and offer our services to someone else? Among people, that, of course, is quite possible and proper if the employer demands too much of his employees, if he does not pay a just wage, his employees have the right to quit their jobs and seek employment elsewhere. But with man in relation to God, that's impossible. 
We didn't make a voluntary contract to work for God. There were no mutual conditions and stipulations, agreements and demands before we began to work for the Most High. Remember, our employer is the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the almighty sovereign God. Only by an act of his omnipotent will were we called into being and placed here in God's world and in his service and under his sovereign dominion. Even though we would rebel, are we actually able to quit work? Can we leave God's workshop? Of course not. We must work with all that God has given us. If God is unrighteous, with respect to man, the situation does not change at all. Man remains servant by God's sovereign will. We can never escape from his service and his right to judge. But perish that thought, of course, for God's righteousness is an undeniable truth. And we too, even with the prophet Jeremiah, begin confessing God is righteous. It's clear from Scripture that that has to be our starting point. Again, notice the testimony of Jeremiah 12, the opening verse. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee. Yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Clearly, the prophet can't understand the prosperity of the wicked. He pleads with God concerning his judgments. Yet, the truth that God is righteous is established beforehand. That cannot be questioned. The prophet is not tempted to doubt the righteousness of God. It stands out so clearly, too, in the passage we read in Romans 9, 14 through 18, where we had the question asked, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And the apostle hastens to answer, God forbid. The question, therefore, can never be whether God himself is righteous and just, whether God seems fair in our eyes. We have no right to ask that question. That would imply that we summon God before the bar of human justice and that we propose to judge the almighty sovereign God. That would mean that we have a criterion or a standard of our own that we would apply to God. But there is no law above God. There is no other standard of justice There is no criterion whereby he can be judged. God is absolute. 
the Almighty, the sovereign God of heaven and earth. He alone is the lawgiver and judge. And so the question must be whether we, in a given case, can understand the righteousness and justice of God. And again, we search the scriptures to see what God himself says. And if we aren't satisfied with what God reveals to us in his word, then we too face the answer of the apostle. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? The answer of our catechism here to this first question is not at all. Is there injustice with God? Not at all. His demand is just. For God made man capable of performing it. God created man good, as we saw in the previous Lord's Day, as we traced the origin of our misery. God created man without corruption and sin. God created man so that he could reach the purpose for his existence in relation to God and all things. God created man in his own image. Man was so created that there was a creaturely likeness of God in him. There was a reflection of the perfection of God in man. Man was created in true knowledge of God, righteousness and holiness. He could know his creator. He could heartily love him. He could live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. God gave us all things necessary to keep the law. There was nothing lacking in man that would cause him to fall short of the, the demands of obedience. Because man was endowed with true knowledge of God, righteousness and holiness, he was certainly able to perform the demands of God's law. But, as we also saw then in Lord's Day 3, man fell. By the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, he deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Man deliberately disobeyed the commandment of God. All he had to do was refrain from eating of that fruit of just one tree of the garden. Adam was capable of obedience to God. But Adam chose to believe the lie rather than the word of God. And the point is that in Adam we fell. Adam was the representative of the whole human race. All men are reckoned in Adam. All are organically and legally in him. And therefore we, you, I, each individual man, all are responsible, personally responsible for the squandering of those divine gifts. We were all originally endowed with true knowledge of God, righteousness and holiness. 
We all were disobedient. We cared not for the good gifts of God. We all sank into the darkness of spiritual death and now stand by nature opposed to God and his perfect law. So God is righteous in demanding obedience to his holy law. We are still responsible for the good gifts originally given by God. Just because we squandered those gifts, it does not follow that we are no longer responsible for them. Scripture makes it clear that in Adam we all died. Romans 5.12 The very being of God requires that he maintain his demand for obedience. Even though we are now incapable of performing it, the demand of the law is still just. God still demands that we love him and the neighbor. We are required to be holy even as he is holy. And now the second question examined in this Lord's Day is whether God will punish sin. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? And by this question, we seek to understand how God maintains his righteousness in punishing the sinner. Many people, even in Reformed circles, want to maintain that God is only love. Love, sweet love. And that therefore God cannot and does not punish. And they would argue that wrath and hatred are sin and that God certainly cannot therefore be filled with wrath against our sins and punish them. God is only love. A loving, benevolent God. They assert that a God who punishes, oh, that's a terrible God. That's the product of the reasoning of a scholastic theologian. They want nothing to do with such a God, a God who punishes. Some would maintain that if there is punishment, it's only here and now in this life. They insist there is no hell and that everyone will eventually be saved. Others teach that there will be at least some sort of second probation after death, another chance of escape. These people argue that sin is both temporal and finite and that it would be gross injustice to impose everlasting punishment upon sin that is committed by finite man in time. But all these deny the clear truth of God's word. All these deny the truth 
of God's righteous judgment. The testimony of the catechism is God is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins. God will punish them in his just judgment, temporally, that is, in time and history, and eternally. God expresses his wrath and realizes it in the curse. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The testimony of Scripture emphasizes these very truths. Understand, God hates the sinner as well as his sin. Psalm 11 verse 5 tells us, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked, and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Romans 1 verse 18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God will punish both in time and eternity. His word already after the fall of our first parents, Genesis 3, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the dust. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. His word in Psalm 90, verse 7, For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. The word of Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 46 And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. The Catechism quotes from Scripture this curse of our God, which was set forth in Deuteronomy chapter 27. And then the Apostle Paul makes reference to it in Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But understand that God's wrath is not an imperfection in God. His wrath is in no way in conflict with his love. God's wrath is the reaction of his holiness against sin. The wrath of God is not a violent agitation of the mind or a passion like the anger of man which arises from our sinful flesh, God's wrath is the expression of his holy will according to which he hates and punishes everything that is opposed to his holiness. And God's wrath is not merely directed against sin and not the sinner. 
Some like to try to make such a distinction, but it's pure abstraction to say that God hates sin but loves the sinner. It's really an outgrowth of the notion of common grace. God's wrath is clearly directed against the workers of iniquity. God cannot and will not let sin go unpunished. God is holy and just and good. He cannot simply forgive and forget. He cannot deny himself. He cannot wink at sin. And his mercy can never be in conflict with his justice. The holiness of God cannot let him overlook or ignore the fact that the wicked trample underfoot the glory of his name and refuse to obey him. Sin demands punishment. God's holiness reacts against the sinner in wrath. God, therefore, punishes both for our original as well as actual sins, both temporally and eternally. The Catechism tells us that he is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them. God is not only angry with the actual sins we commit day by day in thought and word and deed, But God is also filled with wrath because of our original sins. We are born in sin because the whole human nature was corrupted by the sin of Adam. Romans 5.14 tells us, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. And God punishes in time as well as in eternity. Temporal and eternal punishment cannot really be separated from each other. God does not change his attitude toward the wicked after they die. In time, God doesn't assume an attitude of favor and grace toward the sinner and richly bless him, and then in eternity cast that same sinner into the outer darkness of hell in his fierce wrath. The catechism emphasizes that God punishes sin in time as well as in eternity. God does not change. God's wrath against the wicked is an ever-present reality His just judgment is executed constantly. And we can see God's punishment in time as well as in eternity. Here, in this life, the present bodily, physical death, certain special miseries and sufferings that are inseparably connected with certain sins, even in the prosperity given to the wicked. Think of Psalm 73, where Asaph is given to see that in giving them prosperity, God is placing the wicked, as it were, in slippery places to hasten their destruction. 
sin is punished with more and greater sin. He gives them over to a reprobate mind as we have it in Romans 1. And in eternity, God punishes with eternal damnation in hell. The sinner is forever banished from the presence and blessing of the living God. Hence, our loving God is righteous in punishing the sinner. His very being demands punishment for the sinner. His righteousness demands that he react against the sinner in his holy wrath. And on the judgment day, we shall see that God has dealt justly with all men, both elect and reprobate. Now the final question we consider in order to understand the righteousness of God concerns God's mercy. Is not God then also merciful? And by this question, we seek to understand how God maintains his righteousness in manifesting his mercy. Scripture speaks clearly and often concerning the mercy of God. Psalm 86, verse 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous in mercy and truth. Think of Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. God's mercy is one of his wonderful attributes in the absolute sense. The virtue of mercy considers the goodness of God from the viewpoint that he is the infinitely perfect and blessed God. Mercy is the attribute according to which God tenderly loves himself as the highest good and the most blessed God. God is rich in mercy, not because of or through any relation to us, but absolutely and in himself. With respect to his people, God's mercy is his virtue according to which he wills and desires to make the creature share in his own divine blessedness. Mercy is God's desire to deliver his child from suffering. Mercy delivers the creature from all misery and fills him with life and joy. But, beloved, God's justice does not conflict with his mercy. God's justice does not make God a cruel tyrant who knows of no mercy. And at the same time, God's mercy does not militate against his justice and prevent him from punishing the sinner. God's justice is the virtue according to which God reveals himself as the sovereign Lord and judge of heaven and earth. 
God's justice requires that he reward the good with good and the evil with evil. God demands that all rational moral creatures acknowledge him as the God who is perfectly righteous and holy in all his dealings with man. The Catechism emphasizes that the blessed mercy of God can reach man only through the way of his justice. Notice, God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Mercy does not eliminate the execution of God's justice and righteous wrath. Let us remember, God is one. There's no conflict between the attributes of our God, his wonderful virtues, Truth, faithfulness, righteousness, and justice do not stand opposed to love and grace and mercy. Not at all. Mercy and justice never stand opposed or separated. All the attributes of God are in him in beautiful harmony and union. We can never separate God's attributes, for God is his attributes. He has a just mercy and a merciful justice. If we take away an attribute, we really deny God. You can think of a, a glass prism with the sunlight shining through it, revealing Seven colors, the colors of the rainbow. And not one color can be taken away. So it is with God. And God's justice demands punishment. Mercy cannot be bestowed upon the wicked as such. It cannot reward and bless the sinner except on the basis of justice. The guilty sinner cannot be blessed, for his sin demands that he be punished. This makes perfect sense. Think, for example, of a judge, an earthly judge, who instead of maintaining law and justice, pardons a terrible murderer. Sad to say that happens. And suppose that murderer is released and kills again. Is that judge motivated by mercy in pardoning that awful criminal? Of course not. We would call that judge cruel for releasing the murderer to go out and kill again. The sinner must experience even in the way of sin in his way of sin, that God is good and just. He must, therefore, be punished as God's justice requires. 
The sinner must not be able to say that God is not good and righteous and holy, that God blesses him in his sin. And so the sinner faces extreme punishment. God's justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. The sinner has sinned against the living God himself and therefore justice demands an everlasting punishment. So it is, that God is perfectly righteous in manifesting mercy. In this final Lord's Day of the first section of our Heidelberg Catechism, we see that God is perfectly righteous in his dealings with the sinner. There's no possibility of escape as far as man is concerned. God is righteous in demanding obedience, righteous in his punishing the sinner, righteous in manifesting his mercy. The first part of the catechism dealing with the misery of man leads us to confess with the Apostle Paul Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? For we must see, beloved, that salvation is all of God. Our case is hopeless as far as man is concerned. Salvation cannot be of man. God has so beautifully revealed his mercy in Christ Jesus. In our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, we see God's mercy and justice in perfect harmony. For God's righteous wrath for our sins was given to fall upon Christ. Thanks be to God for so great a salvation. In Christ we see revealed the perfect righteousness of our mighty God. As we shall see going forward, the catechism leads us step by step that the one and only hope we have is in Christ. And so it is that we are humbled as we ought to be. And then we no longer attempt to reply against God. But then with fear and trembling we confess, Thou art the potter. We are the clay. Thou art our righteous God. Thine is the glory. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, Humble us even to the dust by thy word of truth that we may give glory and praise unto thee, rejoicing in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
extolling thee, the righteous and holy God. We thank thee for so great a salvation. We ask it with the remission of our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.